Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, it is I, your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, and I am on, um, get back into editing the uh, two films coming out soon, uh, Manuel and Sin City and Lady Hyde, and uh, those are in post right now, going through doing some sound work on uh, Lady Hyde and uh, figuring out some sound difficulties that need to tackle so that is on board there one of the always things of being a independent filmmaker you always have the dreaded post things that pop up especially with computers and bullshit like that so anyway so this is about mr jess franco and uh once again this is episode 71 film number six of Jess Franco's, which is Death Whistles a Blues, or Death Whistles the Blues. That's interesting, because the DVD is, or the Blu-ray that just came out through um, Severin, which did an amazing job as their double feature. The poster is Death Whistles the Blues, but the book, um, Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema, Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower, it's La Morete Selva Un Blues, Death Whistles a Blues. Span, uh, it's Spain and France uh, co-production, 1962. Alternative title: uh, Agent 077, not 007, but 077. Operation Yamaike, French theatrical. Also on screen, French video: 077, Operation Jamaique, and then uh, Agent. 077 Operation Sexy uh, France Visa issue and alternate French title Operation Sexy uh, Production company on this one is Naga Films SA from Madrid and Euroscene out of Paris uh, Theatrical distributors Rosa Films Barcelona and Euros, Euroscene X out of Paris Shooting date uh, April 1962 classified for Spanish release October 62 so from uh, about 6 months really nice uh, announced December 7th 62 Seville premiered July 3rd of 64 and Barcelona July 31st of 64 and then French visa issued May 3rd of 66 and played France um, as June 28th 66 and finally Madrid in February 6th of 1967. Uh, theatrical running time, Spain, 85 minutes. France, 85 minutes. Uh, quite a big cast. I'm just going to rate off about four, five or six of the names. Uh, cast, uh, Conrado San Martin as Alfred Perrin, a.k.a. Hioa. Um, Danik Pattinson as Moriah Santos. Yours, Roland as Paul Raddick, awesome, a.k.a. Paul Vogel. That's funny. They always do Raddick and Vogel in a few of the later films. And then once again, you have another character, Lena, Lena Raddick, played by Peria Cristal. So that's cool. He did that in um, uh, Paris' 1930. He had the uh, Lena, too, and then he had the uh, Raddick. Uh, let's see here. And we have Maria Silva as Rosita, Joe the Fisherman's wife. Um, and let's see. Andrino Dominicas is Commissioner Folk, sued forms Radic of Moroni's death. Marta Reeves, one of Radic's female friends. Giratici, um, 
Reddick's partner. And then finally, we have Jess Franco as the nightclub saxophonist. Um, okay. Credits, director Jess Franco, screenplay by Jess Franco and Luis Di Diego. Director of photography, Juan Marin. Editor, Alfonso Santacana. Art director, Tony Cortez. Background music, Anton Abril. Producer, Nazario Belmar. Uh, production manager, Ramon Crespo. And assistant producer, Francisco A. Let's see where we at. Uh, Francisco G. Gargoyles. Uh, assistant director, Juan Estelle. And let's see here. What else do we want to hit on this? Uh, uncredited producer, Nazario Belmar. All right, production notes. With the awful Dr. Orloff, Franco had created his first major success, and with success comes pressure to repeat the winning formula. While he would soon attempt just that, his first priority was a crime thriller written with Luis Di Diego called La Morete Silva on Blues. Shooting took place during April 1962, just a month after Orloff opened, in the southern coastal region of Huelva, near the border with Portugal. Franco used the region to represent New Orleans, or the island of Jamaica, if you believe the French version. The story is influenced by Enrique Pereira's 1956 thriller, Muertes on 45 Tours, Murder at 45 RPM, itself based on a, on Equerre Perdu, a novel by Pierre Boileau and Thomas Nircac, in which a man who may or may not have been murdered, haunts his wife and her lover via a 45 p.m. record sent in the mail. La Morete Silva en Blues was classified by the Spanish censor board in October of 1962, but failed to enter Spanish distribution until July 1964. Review after the macabre majesty of the awful Dr. Orloff, Franco turned to the crime thriller with this sober effort about a retired arms dealer terrorized by the vengeful ghost of a man he'd once betrayed. Thanks to a great jazz scene and lustrous monochrome photography, La Morette de Silva en Blues is a feast for the eyes and ears. All that's lacking is better pacing and a greater emphasis on action over dialogue. The strongest performance here is from Perla Cristel as the victim's, I'm sorry, as the villain's wife, Lina Radic. She brings to the film a melancholy glamour, and Franco's camera does, dotes on her whenever she's around, giving her numerous close-ups and framing her as a cross between tragic heroine and shady femme fatale. Conrado San Martin pulls his weight too playing a jocular fellow who may or may not be a sinister ghost from Paul Raddick's Wicked Peer. And uh, he's also, uh, his character was Inspector Tanner and Dr. Orloff. Um, however, the film lacks a compelling villain. Despite looking uncannily like a young William Hartnell, George Roland fails, yeah, George Roland fails to convey the icy menace the role of radic demands. We can readily believe that retirement from crime has softened his character, but we need to see the old steel coming through. And apart from a brief scene in which he dispatches a significant female character, he's just too calm, too detached to finally engage the viewer. It's really a shame that Franco's original choice for the role, Howard Vernon, wasn't available. 
Verne was listed in contemporary Spanish pre-production documents, but for some reason was ultimately unavailable. Fortunately, the lighting and photography um, compensates for deficiencies elsewhere. Franco aims for and largely achieves a sultry film noir atmosphere, a nighttime punch-up in a boating supply warehouse leading to murder on a seafront jetty shows a perfect grasp of how to shoot and edit action sequences, a skill that subsequent cheaper films would see Franco forced to surrender. A sustained tracking shot into a trumpet being played by Julius Smith, an ex-criminal associate of the chief protagonist, has the flavor of Hitchcock, even if the identity thus revealed lacks a strong enough payoff. An ambitious crane shot ascending a poolside springboard to look down upon Raddick as he suns himself suggests that Franco had been absorbing the films of Orson Welles, even if his shakiness of the camera betrays that this is a low-budget Spanish film, not a Hollywood movie. The highlight is an extended sequence without dialogue showing Yoha breaking into the Raddick household in the dead of night. After creeping around and examining the contents of Raddick's safe by torchlight, giving Franco the chance to stage plenty of spooky lighting effects, he slips an LP record onto the turntable, turns it up full blast, and makes his escape through a window. The song, Blues de Tejado, was written by the dead man for his old flame, now Lena Raddick, and it's around this eloquent musical motif, signifying both the heartbreak of lost love and the sinister intrusion of the past into the present that the plot essentially turns. If the film lacks a killer punch, it is not without a strain of somber dignity, carrying with it the first shadings of a melancholy that will reoccur through Franco's career. Franco on screen. Franco cameos as a tenor sax player in a jazz band for an early scene with the trumpet Juli- trumpeter Julius Smith. Looking young, Fresh-faced and confident with the instrument, he's clearly in his element. Cast and crew, in a daring choice for the time and with a refreshing absence of sensationalism, Franco depicts a mixed-race marriage between two secondary characters, Joe and Rosita. Um, see, Joe is Joe Brown and Rosita is played by Maria Silva. Silva is one of the four performers carried over from the awful Dr. Orloff along with Perla Cristel, Conrado San Martin, and Ricardo Valley. Um, the latter, of course, is the awful Dr. Orloff's Morpho, uh, here looking strikingly handsome without the goggle-eyed corpse makeup. Valley is one of the re-into of friends who hang around with the Radics, along with Marta Reeves, in the first of her six roles for Franco's most prominent of which is Kissing Monsters lesbian cult leader Irina. Rosita Pamares, who pops up again in 71 as Aunt Abigail in Virgin Long Living Dead, and Angel Menendez, making the first of eight minor appearances for Franco, ending with Night of the Skull in 1973. Oh, oh cool, Angel Menendez. All right, I like him. Uh, also turning up together are... Miguel Madrid, future director of 1971's Frankly Deranged Nefragavis, also known as Graveyard of Horror, and his wife-to-be, Yosta Gray, a.k.a. Maria Paz Madrid, Nefrophagus's frosty matriarch Barbara. 
uh, Miguel Madrid, who worked for Franco again a few months later, and the sadistic Baron von Klaus is the guitarist in a jazz band alongside Jess Franco on saxophone, while in the same scene, Yocasta Gray plays the nightclub hostess, ushering the leading cast to their seats. Perhaps the Madrids actually met while working on this film. Also of note is Fortuno Bonanova, here playing Commissioner Fenton, a Spanish-born actor who worked for Billy Wilder in Double Identity, Otto Preminger in Whirlpool, and Robert Aldrich in Kiss Me Deadly. His most significant role was in Citizen Kane, which he played the exasperated opera coach trying to school Kane's talentless wife. Very good resume. Uh, music, Blues de Tejano, or Rooftop Blues, the song around which the story revolves, is a smoky trumpet-led number in the Julie London vein and sounds like something Dorothy Valens might sing in Blue Velvet. Preferably in Spanish, as the English lyrics scan atrociously. It had already it had already received an airing in Vampiresa's 1930, but this new arrangement is the definitive one. The remaining score is cool jazz with a few avant-garde moments, lending an agreeably classy tone to the film. Franco himself wrote the jazz number, including Blues Te Tejano, while Anton Garcia Brill is created with background music, referring to the relatively minimal orchestral element which pop up from time to time. Abril, however, was no slouch when it came to scoring. Among his many credits, 175 at least, wow, right there, Franco, is the peerless spooky music for Armando de Austrio's 1971 classic, Tombs of the Blind Dead. Nice. All right, locations. Uh, despite on-screen affirmation in writing, there's little to convince the viewer that we're really in New Orleans. Uh, some scenes were shot in the marshy landscape around the port of Hoelva in Andalusia. Curiously, three of the featured cars in the film have number plates beginning with the letter Z, indicating the northern eastern Spanish providence of Zaragoza. Could some of the film have been lensed there? The studio material was shot in Madrid, which is considerably closer to Zaragoza than Huelva. Perhaps only a small amount of shooting took place in the south. Studio, Estudios Sevilla Films at Madrid. Connections. All right. Um, Franco remade this film for Euroscene in 1973 as Kiss Me Killer and reshuffled a few of its themes in Sangre en Miso Zapatos, Blood on the Shoes. Uh, 1983. Uh, he also sold what he claimed was the same script to Argentinian-born producer-director Tulio de Marcelli, resulting in Dua 77 Intrigo in Lisbon, a.k.a. Espionage in Lisbon, made 1965, starring Brett Halsey. However, there are few similarities between La Morete, Silva und Blues, and Espionage in Lisbon apart from the presence of a character called Moriah. Thanks to the emergence of the Spanish version, we can now establish that Moreta Sibla and Blues marks the first appearance of the perennial Franco character, Private Investigator Al Pereira, introduced to us here as Alfred Pereira of Interpool. The name is sourced from Hal Pereira, an art director who worked on many Hollywood films, including Hitchcock classics like the Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief, and The Trouble with Harry. 
read on to discover the hard times that await Peraria in later Franco films. Wow, that's cool. That's the first. Just me reading that now, I just learned that myself about Al Peraria. That's awesome. So he's sourced from Hal Peraria. All right. Uh, following up here, other versions. La Moretta Silva and Blues was retitled Agent 077 Operation Jemaquai for its limited French release in June of 1966. Among the differences between the two, the Spanish version declares that the prolonged hap- the dis- <clears throat> Among the differences between the two, the Spanish version declares that the prologue happened ten years before the main action, while the French cut says just five years had lapsed. The French version omits about forty seconds of Peraria creeping into Raddock's home to leave his musical calling card presumably to add more pace, although other scenes need tightening more than this one. Otherwise, Agent 077 Operation Jamaquai is identical to the original except for the dubbing, which for some reason replaces the name Alfred Peraria with the incongruously jokey Agent Agent 69, pronounced Agent Zero Sonexe Nif. So there's no doubt it was meant to be funny. As there's neither sex nor comedy tomfoolery in the film, it's hard at first to understand why this seemed like a good idea. It's a bit like redubbing A Touch of Evil to turn Quinlan into Quimlap. A third variant apparently exists. The story goes that sometime later, Franco shot inserts to Sex Up, the Moretta Silva and Blues, creating a new version currently unavailable for comparison called variously Agent 077, Operation Sexy, or simply Operation Sexy. Problematica. Some sources incorrectly state that Jose Maria Tesso appears in the film. Um, Alright, so that's it on that. Um, yeah, like I mentioned in the opening, uh, Severin put out a good Blu-ray of this and Rafifi in the City as a uh, double feature, and uh, that was really appreciated because uh, we had public domain, or not, or we had the gray market titles from these two before, so now we got the definitive uh, good transfers of those, and I'll be watching those for the first time reviewing them. Um, I might be doing uh, this one, um, episode 71, Death Whistles the Blues, and then uh, 73, will be Rafifi uh, in the city, and uh, that'll be episode 73, it's film 8. I might do those two by myself to uh, add a few more episodes in the can to speed up the process, Um, so uh, that way it's easier to do those than to um, try to get guests and and schedule everything and try to figure all those out. So anyway, so that's going to be that on that. so yeah, I look forward to watching that. I'll be watching it uh, for the first time, like I said before. So um, after the break, I will let you know what uh, my review of uh, Death Whistles the Blues. But I think I'm going to like it because I like Kiss Me Killer. Um, I like uh, Al Prairie stories. I always like the dead man returning um, and set them up like that, um, kind of like a high plains drifter. So I always dig films like that. Uh, and if you dig things like this, then please download the episodes and subscribe. Uh, we're on so many f- of all the different platforms. I'm sure one is your favorite platform. Subscribe to that one, whatever it be. Uh, tell a friend, and of course, share the episodes. Share all the 
ventures and interesting things you may have learned from listening to the Franco Observer podcast. I know there's things I learn every week from doing the research and learning about these and watching these films. And uh, it's enhanced my life and definitely added a whole new element to it. And hopefully it has or will to yours as well. Uh, you can always get a hold of us at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. Uh, you can get a hold of us on Facebook or Instagram. We have uh, pages on those two platforms. And uh, let's see what else we want to say. Uh, I told you it's on Blu-ray and all that good stuff. And our mission statement, of course, is praise and in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. Um, and on a side note, I've been doing lots of painting during these holiday uh, times, holiday break. And uh, I painted about six or seven Lena uh, paintings. And if you go on the Instagram page, Franco Observer Podcast, you can see some of my Lena Romay paintings. I also did a one on... Um, uh, Diabolical Dr. Z and uh, doing a few other ones so yeah, check them out and tell me what you think so alright well uh, hang on through the bumper music and listen to the review of Death Whistles the Blues and that's a tune I would rather not hear bye just watched Death Whistles the Blues um, on Blu-ray through um, Severn. They put out the double feature um, early, uh, actually late uh, 2021, like around November, something like that, October, November, and um, double feature of Death Whistles the Blues and Rafifi in the City, films number six and eight in the uh, Jess Franco canon. So, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah, film six and eight. Uh, this one, uh, of course, if you listen to the first half, is episode 71 and film number six, Death Whistles the Blues, Le Morete Silva, Un Blues. And I just watched it literally like, uh, just finished it maybe like 10 minutes ago. And I'm here to tell you, I really like this film a lot. It was uh, better than I thought it was going to be, to be totally honest with you. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Franco fan anyway, and, you know, by this time I've seen shit about 75 of his films, so I obviously like the guy. But, uh, yeah, this was like a really strong film. This is a film that you could show a lot of people, even if they're not Franco fans. Uh, it's just a, st- a strong, straight-ahead film uh, written by uh, to the authors of Vertigo, so you have that kind of a good thing. Uh, the twist at the end was really good. Uh, I've seen the remake, Kiss Me Killer, and uh, it was a little different, so this was cool to see this, to see this original second and see the remake first and the other films that he used pieces of this of so uh, i'm gonna go through and do the synopsis of it like i usually do on this portion and then i'll go through the franco list of things that i found and my thoughts and things i liked about this film which there are many all right uh synopsis 1947 on behalf of paul raddick a notorious arms trafficker Two men, Julius Smith and Federico de Castro, both of them musicians, attempt to smuggle a shipment of weapons into the USA. During a river crossing, they are intercepted by a police patrol. Castro is shot down and Smith arrested. New Orleans, ten years later. Lena, Castro's widow, is now married to Raddick, who has retired from crime 
and changed his name to Vogel. They live a life of idle luxury accompanied by an entourage of fashionable young friends. Julia Smith has just been released from prison and has found work playing trumpet in a New Orleans jazz bar owned by Carlo Moroni, Raddick's right-hand man. After seeing Lena enter the bar, he plays a song called Blues de Tejano, which Lena recognizes. It was written by Castro, her dead husband, and dedicated to her. She tells Raddick of the encounter. A few days later, Smith is hit by a car while leaving the nightclub. Before he dies, he makes a garbled confession to Commissioner Fenton that seems to suggest that Castro may still be alive. Raddick receives a letter signed by Castro. It seems that he is alive after all and out for revenge. Moroni learns that a stranger has arrived in the region asking questions about Raddick's past. A man calling himself Yoho has ensconced himself within the community and hangs out at a riverfront at a waterfront jazz bar. During the night, Yoho breaks into Raddick's house, examines the contents of his safe, and leaves an LP record on at full blast. The song is Blues de Tejano. Morea Santos, a cabaret singer at Morona's club, also seems implicated. Yoho comes under attack from Moroni and his thugs, but he escapes and, after killing Moroni, takes refuge with a group of Jamaican friends. Raddick, now increasingly jittery, confesses to Lena that ten years ago he betrayed Smith and Castro to the police. As the New Orleans carnival season gets underway, Raddick and Lena go to an appointment, apparently at the request of at the request at the request at the request wow of Castro at the request of Castro. There they come face to face with Commissioner Fenton and Falk and Federico de Castro, a.k.a. Yoho, who is in truth Alfred Pereira from Interpol. Raddick has fallen into a trap, but escapes by holding Lena at gunpoint. Realizing that Lena was in on the conspiracy, he kills her. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, fleeing, his car, fleeing by car, he eventually finds himself held at gunpoint by, Mar- by Mariah, there's a struggle, the gun goes off, and Raddick drops dead at her feet. Wow, they just told you the whole thing. The end. They usually kind of leave like a little open thing, but yeah, they just basically told you the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's funny because I believe in Kiss Me Killer, uh, the remake, uh, Raddick is actually alive, and that's the or, uh, uh, the guy that's the Castro guy is actually alive, and it's not the woman I thought, but in this one it's actually her that does the switch, and her husband was actually dead. But, uh, so yeah, it was cool. I liked the ending of this. Um, I'll tell you some of my thoughts first, stuff I liked about it, basically, and then I'll go over and do the list last. Um, I like to say Buenos Noches a lot in this film, which is the way I used to end this podcast. i got to get back into doing that again. Um... It's funny because this is Death Whistles of Blues, and the first short film I ever made, uh, god damn, this is probably like 2003 or something, was uh, Ladies Scream the Blues, 
And that was a takeoff of Ladies Sing the Blues. And this is Death Whistles the Blues. So I had a little affinity for that. Uh, as I was watching this film, the look of it and a lot of the, this film has a lot of really good shots, really great setups, great editing, a lot of good stuff that Franco he took a little time with this and it shows. Um, a lot of it looked like t- uh, like it was a cousin of um, Orson Welles' film A Touch of Evil, which is a film I used to really love a lot. And I, I haven't watched for a long time, but uh, it was it was always a really good film that I always uh, enjoyed and got to see the theater during the um, director's cut re-release and everything they put out years ago. So uh, that was really nice to see that. Um, this film has a really great opening sequence that I really liked a lot. Uh, the opening of the film looked really great. Um, it's cool they have the uh, well, the club, and this is called the Stardust Club. And these I think he did the Stardust Club in like the second and third film he did. Uh, it was after we are eighteen. It's um, um, uh, shit. We just did these too. Um, Vampires of nineteen thirty, and then uh, of those. But uh, yeah, they, they mentioned Stardust Club in those, and uh, so they yeah, mentioned Stardust Club and in and the sign later on when um, um, Yoho is talking to Maroni. He goes, "Oh, you're the manager of the Stardust Club." He goes, "I've been to a lot of Stardust clubs, and I can always tell." So yeah, there's, I guess that's a famous thing is the Stardust Club. It's like a kind of a jazz upper class type of uh, fancy place. Um, there's a scene during the film where um, they basically have a conversation with a dancer from the stage or like a singer type and uh, and they have a like a thing with a guy and his girlfriend and then a person that's in crime or that runs a club and then the, the entertainer. And he used that sequence a lot in a lot of his films where the four of them are sitting at a table talking at the club after the person just come off stage and they're sitting there entertaining them. You've seen that in quite a few of his films like The Side of the Mirror and uh, Kiss Me Killer and, and uh, just a bunch of them off the top of my head I can't remember. But I remember seeing that sequence quite a few times in his films. Um, a character in this film I really liked a lot was one of the guys that hung out with the Jamaican group and his name was um, Goliath. And uh, let's see who he was played by, actually, as I'm looking. Th- oh, yeah. Once again, uh, Stephen Thrower book. Um, let's see. Goliath is... Let's see who he's played by here. Uh, let me give you a trip here. Let's see. One of Radix female friends. Uh, Radix friends read a book. Water from Barmaid. Uh, Commission at Sea President. Arm wrestling, okay. Joe, a fisherman. Jim, a fisherman. Guitarist in Smith's band. That must be him. Yeah, so. Um, Joe, a fisherman. Jim, Jim, a fisherman. Miguel Madrid, guitarist in Julian Smith's band. That must be the one. But uh, they call him Goliath. And uh, the first sequence when you see them arm wrestling, he says, I only drink milk. And then later on, Goliath is like sit, drunk and he's sitting on top of the car playing guitar. Goliath reminded me a lot of later on um, Luis Barbu, who I liked. He had a very interesting face, very kind of a cut made of stone. Um, the guy that played Goliath, too, had really great cauliflower ears. That's That caught my eye a lot because being a member of the Cauliflower Alley Club, uh, seeing cauliflower ears in films and wrestling is always a very cool thing. So. Yeah, he had a very nice uh, cauliflower ear. I, don't know, I know he had one. I don't know if he had two. got to check again, but definitely caught one. Uh, yeah, there's many nice shots in this thing. Um, 
there's a sequence too that I kind of laughed about. You don't really see, I don't think in films that much anymore because with money people keep in like saves or they have them. You see people stealing money from people on the laptops and going into their accounts and stealing money. But back in the old days, people used to always have a safe and they keep it in their office and it was like in the wall. And in the old films, you'd see like the painting in front of the safe and they'd move the painting they check all the paintings, and then behind one of them would be the safe. Well, in this one, there's a little button next to the on the floor, and he knew it was like a secret compartment to move this painting. So he stepped on the floor, this little button, and then it moved the painting, and then he could go into the safe from there. Thought that was a nice touch. You used to always see that. You don't really see that too much in day. That was always like a cliche in films and cartoons and TV and all that stuff. Um, oh, yeah, another thing, too, when I was watching this... Um, there's a really good, on the Blu-ray that they released on this from Severin, there's a good 67-minute uh, uh, interview with Stephen Thrower, and he talks about both these films. Well, it's funny because um, I watched the first one on Death Whistles the Blues, and a lot of the stuff he talks about, almost word for word, is stuff from this book. And when he's, and I watched closer on the interview, I was thinking, is he reading his own book? And these certain times where he looks, I don't know if he's looking at the interviewer off screen or if he's reading the text of his book because uh, there's certain things and things that he mentions, Agent 69, and certain things that are almost word for word from this book because then I just um, noticed it because I had just read it myself for the podcast. I was like, wait, I just, I remember that. I remember that sentence, that sentence. So yeah, that was kind of funny. But yeah, so he talks about um, how he restaged the fight scene in this and the boathouse scene with Maroney and um, um, Waho and... um, and I think it was taken from like his second or third film, um, either Vampiresses or um, 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 the uh, anyway. Anyway, so those 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 uh, ones right there. Hold on a second, let me get my list here. As I'm kind of thinking out loud on this episode, should have my uh, notes a little bit closer to me. But uh, yeah, it was either um, from. Uh, I think it's from Operation Red Lips, actually, or uh, Larina de Tabra. I think it's from Operation Red Lips, the second film. Uh, but yeah, so that had, um, it was a nice shot and air sequence, and they had redone that. Um, and uh, let's see, what else we want to say that's not on the list? Um, oh yeah, uh, Vogel, it was cool. So it, it's funny that the lady in here, again, is Lena, and this is the second film now where the evil woman, even though she's a hero at the end, but she's a, portrayed as a heel throughout. Her name is Lena, and then he had a connection with Lena. And um, I like a lot of the dialogue of this with the husband and wife, him and her. Uh, there's a good sequence in the car when they talk about the past. And, and there's a, a lot of good a lot of good sequences in this film. Um, the masquerade ball sequence I thought was really cool. Reminded me of a girl from Rio, especially with Lena's costume. Reminded me of um, Maria Rome's uh, in uh, Girl from Rio. Or... Uh, yeah, or surely Eden, I forgot which one. But yeah, definitely one of the two leads of that reminded me of the costume. Um, and um, yeah, and the lady that uh, was Vogel's wife in this, Lena, she reminded me, and she, of course she was in um, uh, um, Dr. Orloff as Dr. Orloff's mistress. I think it's Arnie or Anne. And uh, she uh, was in this film as well. Yeah, it's cool too because Thor mentions it as well in the. Um, interview that uh, a couple carryovers from Dr. Orloff, the film right before this, you have uh, the lady that, well, basically uh, Morpho and uh, and the two assistants of Orloff are in this film, 
and uh, if um, they would have had um, um, Radic or they would is it a protocrystal or I'm sorry as as um, yeah as of Conrad San Martin they would have had um, um, Howard Vernon then it would have been Howard Vernon and Morpho and the three assistants but in this one um, Orloff's wife plays basically uh, Raddick's wife in this and uh, so she carries over from that film and Morpho is one of the party guests that hangs on the pool not not a big part actually and um, then you have uh, one of the cabaret dancers uh, plays um, Rosita uh, in this and she's really pretty she's uh, one of the Jamaican guy's wives and uh, she plays cards and with the other guys and Goliath and that she's like well you sure are all ugly and kind of they all are like ugh so it's funny she's she's really good in this um, so yeah there's like three or four people at least three four probably four or five actually from Orloff that's in this um, including Jess Franco because he plays a sax player in this and a little little quick nod um, and let's see oh yeah so anyway so yeah the lady I'm sorry the lady that played that uh, she reminded me of um, Soledad Miranda uh, her look a little bit and uh, it's kind of cool that each film he has a gal that kind of has that Soledad Miranda look it's like he was f- looking for her and then he finally found the woman he wanted and had that short thing and it was so interesting that why that was his ideal and you can kind of see it leading up to her which was pretty cool so um, yeah no I, I definitely dug this film a lot reminded me I like it it was a good film noir a lot of good twists and turns um, really good acting really really good plots um Couple things were a little bit long, but it was it was definitely really good. Um, so now I'm going to go over my uh, tried and true uh, body of work. My being the Franco list of things that pop up over and over again, and I will go through the list and see if uh, this film has any of those things. Oh yeah, also to uh, fear or desire. Uh, usually that's another thing too. I forget that um, Stephen Thor had mentioned brought up that most Franco films either deal with fear or desire. Uh, this one I would say is fear because Raddick fears his past coming to get him. And, uh, and it's, uh, the desire, the law. So, anyway, but yeah, so this would be definitely based in fear. Uh, all right. So number one, body of water. Yes, there are plenty of body of waters in the film. It opens with a bridge and Body of Water right off the bat. Uh, Body of Water figures out quite a bit in this film. Um, through most of Draco's films, um, all with the sailboats and all that, which leads us to number two and three, Sailboat and Boats, correct? Yes. Um, it's funny, too, the painting that hid the safe was a sailboat. Uh, there's a lot of boats in the film. There's, of course, um, his other um, image is always a boat that's washed up on the shore. That's kind of like just... Um, uh, Shipwrecked, you know, it's almost like the dreams. When the dreams are out in motion, they're out in in this water. But when they're when their dreams are no longer working, or or you've uh, sitting there and you're, you're stuck, you're washed ashore on the on the sand. So uh, it's kind of cool. In the end, when he's getting ready to die, he wanders and see all these boats that are sitting on the sand um, ashore next to him. So it's kind of a cool touch. Um, number four, palm trees. Correct. Yes, there's plenty of palm trees in this. Uh, five jungle sound effects or over sound effects of any kind. Not not really in this one. Uh, number six, chained up person. Not that I can think of really. No, nobody chained up in this film. Um, yeah, no. 
Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, number seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. Not really stripping. Uh, instead of the dancers on stage, it's like entertainers, a uh, female singer, and then musicians kind of take the place of dancers in this film. Uh, number eight, club scenes, dancing. Yes, uh, the jazz clubs, everybody partying, having a good time, dancing um, through the female entertainer, the, the whiskey jazz club, a few other places, the Stardust, of course. Um, and, of course, the New Orleans Club. Uh, number nine, jazz music. Yeah, tons. This music's this film's filled jazz music, which is great. Franco, like I said again, plays saxophone and jazz scene, and uh, you see that quite a bit. Uh, number 10, excessive zooms or out-of-focus shots. No on this. He has, like, uh, access to a crane, and he actually has dolly shots in this and stuff, so he doesn't really have the zoom, uh, and nothing's out-of-focus because they're a lot of good stylized shots. Uh, number 12, mirror shots. Yes, mirrors figure out really good. There's a great sequence inside their home with Lena and Radic and the mirrors around her that kind of show every side. There's nothing to hide with all the mirrors uh, the opening too, there's some mirror shots, and there's quite a few in this to kind of because they're always hiding something. So I thought it was kind of cool that they have that. Um, let's see, uh, one twelve. Oh yeah, also there's a mirror too in the beginning when he's driving the truck. You see him looking in the uh, mirror on the side of the car and sees the sees the police, and that kind of figures in. So it's always the other side of the mirror, literally, and uh, you see that quite a bit. Um, and then. Uh, Okay, mind control theme, not really, well, yes and no, uh, mind control that he thinks he's alive, but he's not alive, so that's the fear thing more than mind control, but those two kind of figure out sometimes together. 14, magic tongue scenes, well, no Lena, so no magic tongue. Uh, number 15, no Lena, no tongue. No Lena, no tongue. Uh, okay, so uh, number 15, uh, red light, uh, that would be negative, because it's black and white film, so can't really tell if there's red light. Number 16, a sheepskin rug or masturbation with a C item. Uh, half, uh, there's actually a sheepskin rug in this film, which I got excited about. Uh, in the scene where I, I talked about earlier of um, Lena sitting at her uh, makeup kind of counter deal with like four or five mirrors around her, and there's a sheepskin rug under her chair. Uh, let's see, 17, Mad Scientist. No, that was the last film, Dr. Orloff. Uh, 18, fish tank shots, uh, no, um, and let's see, uh, 19, talking parrots, um, I'm just kind of thinking back, I wonder if I did this, yeah, yeah, I did the, the list on the, on the, well, actually, we haven't done the last film yet, so, doing these out of order, sorry, um, <laughs> a little behind the curtain scenes, I know, it's funny, because, uh, I, uh, I'm still waiting to do Dr. Orloff, um, waiting to see if Greta's going to help me do it or if uh, if I'm doing it solo. So I'm recording this one first. So that's why I was thinking back to myself, wait, did I do the list on the last episode? Well, I haven't recorded the last episode yet. So, All right, now back to your regularly scheduled program. Uh, 17, Mad Scientist. That would be no. That's the last film, Dr. Orloff. No Mad Scientist in this. Uh, 18, Fish Tank Shots. Uh, no. Uh, 19, Talking Parrot or Talking Animals. No. Uh, number 20, end credits, yes or no? Yes, it says Finn, F-I-N at the end. Uh, and actually, going to the end credits too, there's a really cool end credit sequence because uh, he gets killed and then you see the end credits, it says Finn, and then it plays the credits of the names. And instead of it going over a black screen, there's like a few more scenes play out of some of the island people that were there on the beach kind of walking up and looking at his dead body and some 
taking the hat off and some just watching, but it's kind of cool. And those credits play over a few more scenes of people walking up. It's, it's kind of cool for a Franco film. It's a little something different. And, uh, I really like the end sequence quite a bit, uh, cause it just plays out a little longer, which was almost like a 1970s thing, but done here back in, uh, what year is this? Uh, 62. So that's pretty cool. Uh, okay. Number 21 handwritten notes. Yes. There's handwritten signs. I meant to say, um, the club in New Orleans, he walks out, um, see anything I have it written down here. Yeah. The Occident Orient that's written in, uh, paint. You can tell it's not really the name of the club. They just painted it onto, uh, boards to make it look like it's part of that club. And, supposed to be in New Orleans, but it wasn't, or New Orleans. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of cool. Let me think what else I have on my list that uh, I might have skipped over. Uh see, Pan the Painting, Rosalita. Yeah, okay, good. So up to this one. Number 22, Spiral Staircase. Yeah, there's a Spiral Staircase in Vogel's place. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. And uh, she lives upstairs. She has her own room, his wife, and he sleeps by himself, which is funny. Um, I don't know if it was a thing then for the censors or if they just did it for sleeping because of the snoring or whatever, who knows. But, uh, yeah, they sleep in separate beds and she sleeps upstairs, up, up the spiral staircase. And they have another staircase. They have a regular staircase, too, on the right side and then a spiral staircase in his deal. Um, okay, and let's see, number 23, inept cops. Yes and no. Um the woman's the one that kind of sets it in motion, and the cops follow her lead, and they almost and actually they get her killed in the end. So they they are inept, but they're good. Alpha Prayer from Interpol is good, and so it's almost a mixed bag. But you know, but they get killed too, the other cops. So it's funny. You have to watch it. Uh, number twenty four, Billy Chains, not yet, none of that, and Kinkless, not in this film. So yeah, no, this was a really good film. Once again, I definitely dug it. Um, it's a very good, like mainstream film um almost a cousin like i said to uh touch of evil kind of had that feel of it um and also like a little miami vice later on and uh i always like those kind of double cross uh things if and somebody come back from the dead they think and stuff like that i always always dig that stuff so uh all right so i'm gonna hit my plugs once again here to kind of wrap up this uh book in this episode uh, of course, there's a donation button on the deal. Please uh, donate if you feel you like the show and want to give me a little tip for uh, doing all this every week f- for free and all that good stuff. If not, just keep listening and tell your friends. Um, if you don't want to donate, what you can do is download all the episodes. Uh, subscribe to the show. I always pr- appreciate that. Uh, rate uh, on the web. If you on any of the platforms like Amazon or um, Apple or any of that stuff, if you want to rate us, whatever three four or five stars whatever it goes to please do so please leave a good review if possible uh, appreciate it definitely helps the show uh tell all your friends about it share it uh sunny and share it to everybody uh if you want to get a hold of us have any questions or suggestions or fan mail or whatever you want to do um we do have an email it's really rarely used by people but i always want to say it it's uh franco observer at yahoo.com uh, it's always open, so please send us a line if you f- feel free to. Uh, also, uh, it's kind of late in doing this here and wrapping this up. Um, find us on Facebook and Instagram. We have pages there. Always updating with uh, some paintings I've been doing of Lena and uh, some Franco stuff and other cool stuff. And, of course, mission statement, praise and in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. 
And uh, one of my missions on this earth is doing that for the last few years, and uh, I don't know, maybe the last year and a half or so. And uh, I feel I've been doing my duty as a good soldier and uh, waving the Franco flag along with my own. And uh, through his teachings and through his films, it influences me, and I learn things, and it helps me uh, with my own editing, which I'm doing a lot of sound editing right now on the film, so... It's kind of cool to watch these films that are dubbed and then do your own editing and kind of see how that looks, So, or your sound editing and uh, looping and all that. So it's pretty cool. I like it. Um, all right, well, that's going to kind of wrap up this thing. Like I said, it's late here, and uh, I wanted to squeeze in this one because I'm getting ready to start a new job and uh, want to try to knock these episodes in the spaces I have. So uh, buenas noches, and I hope you have a good evening, and uh, we'll see you around. Adios.